Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. In July 1945, World War II was officially over in Europe. It was a time of victory, but it was also a time to remember everything that had been lost. The Nazis were defeated, but the cost had been more than 80 million lives. But for some, there remained little time for reflection. Practically as soon as World War II ended, so too did a new conflict begin brewing between the United States and the Soviet Union. A cold war of ideologies. Following Germany's defeat, both sides began rushing to claim the spoils of war. The Nazis had been responsible for developing some of the most technologically advanced weapons the world had ever seen and both sides wanted to get their hands on them very badly. What came as a surprise to both the Soviets and the U.S. was how much the Nazis intertwined magic and the supernatural with all their technological advances. In the weeks after the fall of Berlin, an elite U.S. scientific intelligence group known as Operation Alsos began trying to gain access to a bombed-out villa in a formerly ritzy neighborhood named Dahlem. This particular villa, located at 16 Puchlerstrasse, had once been home to Heinrich Himmler's Anernerbe Institute. The Alsos group only had a vague notion of what exactly went on in this villa. But they knew whatever it was Himmler's men had been cooking up, it was vital to U.S. intelligence interests that they got their hands on it before the Soviets did. They had only learned recently that a division of the Anernerbe, called Applied War Research, had been supplying the Luftwaffe and other military divisions with live human subjects from the concentration camps to be used in human experimentation. A nuclear physicist named Samuel Goudsmit was with a group of soldiers and also scientists who made his way down into the basement of the villa. That was where they came across a collection of bizarre Ananerba occult relics. He later described in his report finding a room full of strange symbols, costumes and remnants of some sort of religious ceremonies unlike anything he'd ever seen before. He found a bunch of very realistic dummies that scared him at first when he mistook it for a pile of human cadavers. Then, in another corner, as he sifted through a pile of ashes, they found a charred, black, ball-like object, so tiny that it could be held in the palm of one hand. But unlike the pile of mannequins, this object was very, very real. It was the skull of an infant. As disturbing as some of the discoveries they made were, the Alsos group knew they had a job to do. Namely to box every scrap of scientific research up and make sure it never ended up in the hands of the Soviets. 
The documents they collected from the Institute made their way to the United States, and from there would eventually end up being taken over by the newly formed Central Intelligence Agency. Among the avenues of research the CIA became most interested in were the Nazis' experiments to find the perfect truth serum. Some magic potion that, once administered, would bend the will of the subject so that they would be forced to do the bidding of another person. I've talked about where some of this research would lead in prior episodes. This classified program that began at the Army Chemical Center in Edgewood, Maryland, would start out being called Project Bluebird, then become Project Artichoke, and finally, MKUltra. A lot of what MKUltra focused on was experimenting with psychotropic drugs on unwitting subjects for the purposes of mind control. But it wasn't all this led to. In 1952, Morse Allen, the director of what was then Project Artichoke, began searching the globe for the most powerful drugs available that could be used in intelligence gathering. In October of that year, Allen learned about a particular variety of Mexican mushroom called Teonanacto, or God's Flesh. This particular mushroom had been used by the ancient Aztecs in magic ceremonies and supposedly had the ability to expand an individual's mental abilities and endow the user with the power of divination. Or in other words, the power to see the future, or the unknown. Most of the members of the CIA were primarily interested in the stories that claimed that God's flesh had the ability to reduce an individual's ability to lie and could compel them to confess their deepest, darkest secrets. But there were also some members of the intelligence community who became keenly interested in the other stories about the mushroom. Some legends describe Aztec witch doctors, or divinators, who would use these mushrooms to locate lost objects, to leave their bodies and observe events far away, or even to predict the future. But the quest to find the god's flesh proved more difficult than expected. It took Morse Allen almost two years to locate a sample of the mushroom, Once his men had it, they brought it back to the U.S. and secured a contract with some mushroom farmers in Pennsylvania to mass-produce it. Around the same time, Allen became acquainted with an army captain named Henry Carroll Puharich, a research scientist at the Army Chemical Center who was also involved in some pretty unusual side projects. Puharich was less interested in the whole mind-control effects the magic mushrooms produced, as he was in their potential for expanding the brain's extrasensory powers. He was a lifelong believer in psychic phenomena, and even claimed to have experienced episodes of mental telepathy himself during his youth. When Captain Puharich was called in for a briefing, he revealed to Morse and the other CIA operatives in attendance that he knew more about magic, psychic abilities, and the supernatural than practically any other scientist currently working for the U.S. government. He was also a member of a well-funded group of scientists, doctors, and weapons manufacturers located in rural Maine known as the Roundtable Foundation. Some of the other members of the Roundtable Foundation included Marcella DuPont of the Chemical and Weapons Manufacturing DuPonts, Admiral John Gingrich, Director of Security and Intelligence for the Atomic Energy Commission, Ruth Forbes Young of the Forbes family of bankers, as well as her husband Arthur Middleton Young, a noted Princeton University mathematician, who designed the Bell Corporation's first helicopter. This group of wealthy elites, government bigwigs, and scientists had a lot of diverse research interests. But one common goal most of them had involved the study of psychic phenomena to see if these powers could be harnessed and put to use. Soon after that meeting with the CIA, Captain Puharich was given a higher security clearance and briefed on the agency's existing efforts to locate 
mind-altering drugs. Puharich naturally latched onto the side effects some of these drugs were purported to produce, including ESP and mental telepathy. By the time the 1960s rolled around, several disturbing reports had begun to come in from the Soviet Union that they had their own scientific research program focused on mind control and developing psychic abilities for intelligence purposes. Then a shocking film emerged from the Soviet Union showing a purported psychic woman who appeared to be able to move objects sealed inside a glass aquarium using only the power of her mind. That was bad enough. But then the film went on to show the woman's apparent ability to stop a frog's heart simply by concentrating on it. This left the United States with no choice. If the Soviets had such abilities at their disposal, then they needed it too. This all led to the U.S. government creating their own top-secret research program into developing psychic spies. It was a program that ran for 23 years, eventually becoming known under the codename Project Stargate. What's strangest of all, though, is that even though the project was officially shut down in 1995, their final reports may have proven that psychic abilities are real. I'm Nate Hale, and I know what you're thinking. And this is The Conspirators. In 1952, science writer Martin Gardner published a book titled Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science, which helped kickstart the modern scientific skeptical movement. Gardner was frustrated with all the crackpots and charlatans he saw promoting pseudoscience and psychic abilities. He didn't know at the time about Dr. Puharich or his work with the Defense Department regarding psychics, or else he undoubtedly would have gone on the attack against him as well. One person Gardner did go on the attack with was Professor Joseph Banks Rhine, head of Duke University's Parapsychology Laboratory. I've talked about J.B. Rhine's research into ghosts and extrasensory perception in a previous episode. But in short, during the 1950s and 60s, Rhine became the most prominent researcher in America into paranormal phenomena. He conducted hundreds of experiments to see if he could awaken latent psychic abilities in his subjects. Gardner vehemently dismissed any positive results Ryan reported out of hand as either being the result of shoddy scientific methodology or even outright fraud. One thing Gardner didn't know was that the U.S. government didn't quite share his skepticism. Because Professor Ryan was secretly working for the Department of Defense at the very time Gardner's book was being published. Declassified documents from the era revealed that, among other things, Ryan's parapsychology laboratory was involved in testing ESP in animals. For example, they conducted experiments to see if dogs could locate landmines buried underwater. While initial tests demonstrated some striking results, later experiments were deemed failures. Other experiments Ryan was involved in dealt with figuring out how homing pigeons always knew where to go. The result? Nobody has still figured it out to this day. They also tested to see if a person could communicate telepathically with a cat, which, if any of you have ever owned a cat you'll know was bound to fail miserably from the start. In 1959, an article appeared in a French magazine called Constellation titled Thought Transfer, Weapon of War. Written by a journalist and former French resistance spy named Jacques Berger. Even though he was long since out of the spy game at that point, the author still maintained a number of close ties to the intelligence community. At the same time, Berger also had a strong interest in the supernatural. 
and he was fascinated with the ways he saw those two circles coming together. In the article, Berger described a series of ESP tests that had been conducted on board the USS Nautilus, the world's first nuclear-powered submarine. A later expanded version of the article revealed that J.B. Ryan himself had personally supervised these experiments. The purpose of these tests was to see if telepathic communication could be achieved even when you were thousands of miles away in the depths of the ocean. There were two key participants in the study, a sender and a receiver. The sender was on board the sub and used a set of Zener cards. These are those cards you're probably familiar with that contain wavy lines and other shapes. The sender would draw a card and concentrate on it. Meanwhile, the receiver was thousands of miles away on dry land at the Westinghouse Friendship Laboratory in California, waiting to receive the telepathic message. According to the article, 75% of the telepathic messages were said to have been received successfully. Later on, though, the Navy turned around and claimed the entire article to have been a hoax. Although there were many government-funded experiments into ESP throughout the 1950s and 60s, many of them directed by Dr. Puharich and J.B. Ryan, the government program into psychic research didn't officially begin until the early 1970s. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Before we continue, I wanted to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Raycon. I recently got a chance to test out a pair of Raycon's E25 earbuds, and I have to say, I'm impressed. They're stylish and fit comfortably in my ears. And I really liked how easy they were to pair with my phone as soon as I opened up the nifty little charging case. The sound is crisp and clear and sounds especially good if you're cranking up the bass. Whether you're working from home or working on your fitness and want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to, not what your family is listening to. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium earbuds in the market, and they still sound just as amazing as some of those other top audio brands you know. The everyday E25 earbuds I got to check out are their best ones yet. With six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. Unlike a lot of other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are stylish and discreet, and don't have any dangling wires or stems to distract anyone while you're on a video call. Raycon's wireless earbuds are really comfortable, and they come with a selection of different pads to fit in the ear. They're perfect for conference calls or listening to your favorite podcast. I've tried a lot of different headphones and earbuds over the years, and I think the E25s measure up incredibly well. In fact, I use them while editing the audio for this podcast you're listening to right now. Raycon was co-founded by Ray J, and a lot of other big names in the music world like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, and Melissa Etheridge swear by them too. Pick up a pair and see what all the hype is about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com TC. That's buyraycon.com TC for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com TC. And now, back to the show. In 1972, the Stanford Research Institute, working alongside the CIA, 
brought a 23-year-old former Israeli paratrooper named Uri Geller into the lab for some experiments. Geller had made a name for himself back in Israel as a psychic and stage magician. He claimed to be able to do all sorts of things simply with the power of his mind, including bending spoons, reading minds, and even the ability to make people do what he wanted by forcing his thoughts into their head. One night during a show Geller was putting on in a theater in Tel Aviv, he caused quite a stir when midway through the act he suddenly had to sit down after becoming physically ill on stage. His heart began racing, and his blood pressure suddenly shot through the roof. He announced to the confused audience that Gamal Abdel Nasser, the president of Egypt and sworn enemy of Israel, had either just died or was about to die. A journalist in the audience rushed out of the theater and began making phone calls to see if there was any truth to Geller's prediction. But at the time, there was still no news about the Egyptian president's death. By then, many people in the audience began storming out of the theater, demanding their money back. But about 20 minutes later, someone rushed back into the theater, shouting that Radio Cairo had just announced that President Nasser had suffered a fatal heart attack at 6 that evening. Someone who could predict the future like that was exactly the sort of intelligence-gathering goldmine the CIA was desperate to get their hands on. So they brought Geller into the Stanford Research Institute and began putting his psychic abilities through a series of tests. Now, even though the CIA was intrigued, they also didn't want to fall for any trickery either. Geller remains a controversial figure to this day, and there have been many skeptics over the years who have claimed his so-called psychic abilities are nothing more than a bunch of common magician's tricks. So before the experiments could begin, the CIA swept the lab for bugs or other electronic devices and even consulted other stage magicians to ensure there would be no way Geller could fool them. The scientists started out relatively simply by putting a die in a sealed box and shaking it up. They then asked Geller to guess which number it landed on. Geller guessed correctly eight times in a row. That might not sound too impressive at first, but the odds of this happening were a one in one million chance. Next, they lined up 10 aluminum film canisters and filled them with common objects and asked Geller to guess what was inside. Geller got it right an astounding 12 times. The probability of this happening was approximately 1 in 1 trillion. It's notable there were only two times in which Geller declined to give an answer. The objects inside each of those canisters were a sugar cube and a metal ball wrapped up in a wad of paper. Because of this and other things the scientists observed, some of them began to speculate that Geller's abilities were somehow tied to magnetism, since these two objects had the least magnetic properties. In fact, Geller was able to correctly identify a different metal ball in another canister when it wasn't wrapped in paper. The Stanford researchers also began to notice that Geller had a noticeable effect on their magnetometer when they allowed him anywhere near it. This really freaked a bunch of them out. Geller was also famous for his seeming ability to bend spoons just by rubbing the neck between two fingers. It should be pointed out, though, that stage magician James Randi, who made it his personal crusade to prove Geller a fraud, was able to reproduce the spoon-bending trick using a pretty simple sleight-of-hand technique. For the next test, the scientists at SRI put a series of drawings in individual sealed envelopes. They then placed those drawings in a safe the researchers didn't have the combination for. At the beginning of each test, one of the envelopes would be chosen at random. Geller was then asked to reproduce the drawing, and the results were nothing short of remarkable. Geller was able to draw a near-perfect reproduction of the images in the sealed envelope seven times. 
But even with these results in hand, Geller's CIA handlers remained skeptical. They were sure there must be some sort of trickery involved. They even called in another independent scientist named David Hyman to look at the results the SRI team were getting. And he immediately dismissed the entire series of experiments out of hand. Hyman steadfastly refused to believe that psychic abilities were real. And even though he didn't have a clear explanation how it was happening, he reported that the experiments must have been somehow skewed, and that Geller and the other psychics the team tested must be getting their information in some way that didn't have a supernatural explanation. So in order to ensure Geller couldn't be getting his supposed psychic information through any electronic means, the SRI then placed him inside an electrically shielded test chamber. A researcher outside the chamber then flipped to the dictionary and chose a page at random. He then drew a picture based on one of the words on that page. The first time this test was performed, the researcher drew a firecracker. Geller ended up drawing a drum with noise coming out of it, which, when you think about it, is a different sort of cylinder that makes noise. So, okay, that wasn't a perfect result. But in another test, the researcher drew a bunch of exactly 24 grapes. Uri Geller drew the exact same thing right down to the very same number of grapes. After that, the SRI kept performing the same experiment over and over under varying conditions. For example, sometimes a researcher would be placed in the sealed room and Geller would be on the outside. And again and again, Geller kept producing surprising results. About the only times Geller got it completely wrong were when he was working with a researcher he didn't get along with. Around the same time, the SRI enlisted another psychic and stage magician named Ingo Swan into the program. Swan had a trick up his sleeve that was even beyond the abilities of Uri Geller. He claimed he was able to use a sort of mental telepathy where he could see anywhere around the world. A process the scientists began calling remote viewing. This had a much more official sound to it than a lot of the other mystical psychic mumbo-jumbo did. The SRI team began performing a series of tests they called the Outbounder Beacon Experiments. The Outbounders in question were actually the researchers who would drive to a random location and concentrate on it, while Swan would have to draw the location on a piece of paper. The results were genuinely surprising. Swan didn't always get things right, but the number of times he did went far beyond the amount that statistical chance said he should have gotten right. The head of the program was a CIA scientist named Kit Green. He became so impressed with the results Swan was able to produce that one day he decided to take the test a step further. Green went out into the hallway and asked the first person he saw to think of a location that meant something special to him and to not tell anyone. He then went to the physicist running the experiments, Dr. Hal Putoff, and told him to communicate with Swan and ask him to draw the location the man was thinking about. Swan drew a map to what he said was a top-secret military base. In front of the base was a circular driveway with a flagpole. He could see some sort of bunker beyond that, and he thought he might be looking at a former Army missile base. But then, things got even stranger. A few days earlier, Putoff and Swan had left the Stanford facility and headed to a nearby Christmas tree lot to pick out a tree for the office. There they met the lot's owner, a man named Pat Price, who came over and shook their hands. He told Putoff he recognized him from a convention in Los Angeles the year before, and that he'd read a little bit about the experiments he was in charge of in the paper. Price told Putoff cryptically that if he ever needed help, he could handle anything. Putoff didn't think anything of it at the time, but then, 
Not long after Ingo Swan drew his map of the purported military base, Putoff received a phone call. It was Pat Price. He revealed to Green that he too was a psychic, and to prove it, he had drawn his own map to the very same top-secret military facility Swan had just drawn. Which was especially shocking considering he shouldn't have known anything about the specific experiment they had just conducted. Not only that, but Price's maps and descriptions of the base were far more detailed than Ingo Swan's were. He was able to accurately describe individual offices and include tiny details like the number of file cabinets, employee names on desks, specific names on certain file folders of classified military projects, and even the name of the top-secret base itself, which he said was Sugar Grove. Putoff went to Green and told him about the strange phone call from Pat Price. Green was so blown away by all this that he immediately went back and found a CIA colleague that he ran into in the hallway to confirm everything. He was then dumbstruck when the man told him that everything the two psychics told him was dead wrong. He had been thinking about his getaway cabin in the woods, but Kit Green still couldn't shake just how much detail the two psychics had provided about the very same location. So that weekend, he drove out to his colleague's cabin and began looking around. He decided to follow the road that led to the cabin and just kept driving to see where else it went. He eventually reached a set of gates topped with barbed wire. Just beyond those gates was a circular driveway with a flagpole, just as the two psychics described. Green had found his way to the front gates of a top-secret military base that even his CIA colleague didn't know was there. It was a former missile base that was currently being used by the National Security Agency. And the base's codename? Sugar Grove. Green wrote up the entire incident in an official report and turned it in. Then on Monday, he showed up for work and was met by two CIA security officers who had opened up an espionage inquiry into Ingo Swan and Pat Price and were demanding answers. It turned out the descriptions the two psychics gave, right down to the names of several classified intelligence operations, were nearly 100% accurate. Eventually, the CIA officers were convinced that Swan and Price couldn't possibly be secret agents. But that only led to an even more disturbing conclusion, that these two purported psychics must be the real deal. After that, Pat Price was brought into the program and given his own security clearance. The CIA began referring to the results both he and Ingo Swan produced as eight martini results, because anyone would need to guzzle eight martinis in a row before anyone would believe them. For a while, the group focused their tests on something called the Outbounder Beacon Experiments. In this series of tests, the psychic, a.k.a. the beacon, would sit inside a Faraday cage, which is a special sealed cage that blocks out electricity. Then one of the researchers, the Outbounder in question, would drive to a random location and the beacon would have to find him in a game of psychic hide-and-seek. Pat Price quickly became the star of the program when he was able to locate the outbounder with startling accuracy. But the outbounder experiments didn't last too long. There just didn't seem to be too much point, not to mention much practical use for the intelligence community. Because if the CIA could get an agent inside a top-secret location, then there wasn't much use for the psychic at that point. Instead, the experiments began to focus primarily on remote viewing. Then in 1974, newspaper heiress Patty Hearst was kidnapped by members of a group called the Symbionese Liberation Army. It was such a baffling case that in February 1974, the Berkeley police reached out to the SRI for help. Pat Price and Hal Putoff went to the police station and put Price's abilities to the test. 
Price flipped through a stack of mugshots and identified three of them as being Hearst kidnappers. One of the photos he picked out was that of a man he said had the name Lobo, Spanish for wolf, associated with his name, and that he'd recently had a tooth pulled. Although Price worked on the case for months, he was never able to nail down Hearst's actual location. But declassified CIA documents did state that Price offered a significant amount of accurate information about the kidnapping. In fact, once the heiress was found, it turned out the three men he identified as being part of the group who took Patty were indeed correct. One of those men was named William Wolfe, and he'd had a tooth pulled right around the time Price picked him out of the mugshots. Price quickly became something of a legend within the intelligence community. His seeming ability to travel across the globe with the power of his mind became highly sought after. He ended up getting passed around between the Army and the CIA for all sorts of intelligence gathering purposes. Price and some of the other psychics involved in the SRI program were used to find downed planes, identify nuclear submarines, and remote view several top-secret foreign military facilities. But Price didn't get everything right all the time. Once in July 1974, Price was asked to spy inside a highly classified facility in Kazakhstan known as URDF-3 that the CIA believed was being used by the Soviets to develop space-based laser weapons. Hal Putoff provided Price the coordinates of the base and set him down inside the electrically shielded Faraday cage room where he did most of his remote viewing. The descriptions Price gave of the facility were recorded on a tape recorder. He also drew diagrams of the cranes, train rails, and massive gas cylinders he was seeing inside his mind. A CIA analyst named Dr. Kenneth Kress compared Price's diagrams to classified satellite imagery and was shocked at how closely the two matched in several instances. This disturbed Kress greatly because he was a hardcore skeptic and up to that point he'd been questioning whether the agency was just wasting its money on its psychic spy program. But the evidence was undeniable that somehow Pat Price had been able to look inside a top-secret Soviet military facility and identify several key features accurately. Yet at the same time, Price wasn't completely accurate. Some features like these gigantic spears Price insisted were there were not visible on the satellite photos. Also, for some reason, Price's drawings didn't include four massive derricks that were clearly visible from above. When Kress asked Price directly why he didn't mention the derricks, Price coolly responded, because they weren't there anymore. At first, Kress had to wonder if perhaps Price was correct since his satellite photos were three months old at the time. But then, later on, Kress got his hands on a collection of much newer satellite photos that still showed the four derricks, even though some of them were partially disassembled. This left Kress with some troubling conclusions. He still couldn't explain how Pat Price got so much right, but he knew the agency couldn't rely solely on the intelligence the psychic provided them either, since a good chunk of what he described wasn't accurate. Then in 1975, Pat Price abruptly quit the SRI and told everyone he was going into retirement. Only this wasn't true. Price had actually been secretly recruited by the CIA to work for them as a full-time asset. We don't know exactly what Price did for the agency during the short time he worked for them. To this day... Those files have never been declassified. But one thing we do know is that in July 1975, Price's spy career came to a tragic end. On July 14th, Price checked into Las Vegas' Stardust Hotel and had dinner with a couple of friends in the hotel restaurant. But then the meal was cut short when Price told them he suddenly didn't feel well and decided to head up to his room. When his friends went up to check on him later on, 
They discovered Price on the bed in cardiac arrest. Paramedics rushed to the scene and tried to revive him, but Price's heart didn't respond. Kit Green went to Las Vegas to see the autopsy report for himself, but was shocked to find there was no autopsy report. The coroner told Green that a mysterious man carrying a briefcase showed up at the hospital and ordered them not to perform an autopsy. After that, all sorts of rumors began to spread throughout the SRI that Price had been murdered, possibly by the KGB or even the CIA. During his life, Price had been a member of the Church of Scientology, and there was even one theory that the Scientologists didn't like Price poking around in their secrets with his psychic abilities and decided to eliminate him. But this wasn't the only strange occurrence going on in the SRI at the time. Throughout the mid-1970s, Uri Geller's star status continued to rise. He made a number of splashy, high-profile appearances on The Tonight Show and other late-night talk shows, and began performing to packed crowds who wanted to see his psychic act live. At the same time, scientists at the SRI began to report odd things occurring both inside and outside the lab whenever Geller was around. Whenever Geller was inside the lab, otherwise reliable equipment would suddenly malfunction. Computers crashed and magnetic tapes would mysteriously become demagnetized. Some people even began reporting objects disappearing and mysteriously reappearing in unusual places. Geller got involved in a series of experiments in the Lawrence Livermore Labs, and right after that, a group of scientists he was working with began reporting even more strangeness. Several nuclear weapons engineers reported seeing objects flying around the room and bright orbs of light floating down the hallway. One of the scientists swore he went home and saw a large raven perched on a piece of furniture in his living room that vanished before his eyes. After that, several other scientists began experiencing terrible nightmares. One of them said that both he and his wife woke up in the middle of the night and saw a disembodied arm floating over them. Things grew so terrifying for the Livermore scientists that two of them quit their careers entirely. Kit Green went to Livermore to see what was going on for himself. He actually began to suspect that Geller might have been working as a double agent for the Israeli intelligence organization, the Mossad, and that Geller might have been causing all this psychic commotion on orders from the Israelis. No matter what was going on, 1975 proved to be the end of the SRI's involvement with the psychic spy program. Not only did they lose their top psychic, Pat Price, but now that Geller was under suspicion of being a double agent, he was on the outs too. On top of all that, the Watergate scandal left the CIA under fire. This meant the agency needed to cut ties with the Stanford Research Institute in order to save face. For a while, this looked like the psychic spy program was on life support. But then a new savior rushed in to revive it. The U.S. military. And they had big plans to make a new kind of psychic soldier. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. There's so much more to this story that I decided to split it into two parts. We'll be back in two weeks with the second half of the story. Wanted to take a moment to thank my latest Patreon supporters. Thank you so much to Angie, Sa, and Colt for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're not on Patreon but still want to help us out, one easy and free way to do so is to tell your friends and family about us and encourage them to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can also find us in most of the major places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. If you want to check us out on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Feel free to drop us a line at any of these locations or even send us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back for part two of this special two-part series. <laughs>